Dividends is a hot topic for our listeners. To have a source of passive income and capital appreciation at the same time is the ultimate dream. It's like earning passive income forever. As Singaporean retail investors, we usually start off investing in dividend stocks and REITs locally. Today, we're going to venture out into the world and find out what are the opportunities for dividend stocks and funds or ETFs globally. What do you need to take note of in terms of taxes, forex and other risks? How do you screen for dividend stocks and what should your dividend play be like in the new environment of inflation and rising interest rates? Join us in the global dividend hunt. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finance as well. My guest today has more than 10 years of content experience in the financial industry, including stints at Stroders and The Motley Fool. He's head of content and investment lead at Prosperous by CGS CIMB Securities. His investing experience has led him to develop a style of investing that is focused on the long term. Let's welcome Timothy Phillips. So is dividends the secret to earning passive income forever, um, where we don't eat into our capital and you know we just keep earning dividends yeah. and live the great life? I think so. I think so. I think it's more about a focus on, as I just spoke to you earlier, about generating um, total returns. So I, I'll explain the difference there. So total returns is the price return plus what you would receive from the dividends. So effectively, say you earn a price return of 10% in a year and the mm. dividend yield is 3%, then your total return would be 13%. So the price is refer- referring to the stock price. Yeah, the stock price and then Goes the dividend there. yield. Effectively, that's a percentage. Mm. And then you can add that on top of your price return to get the total return. So it's a better gauge of a dividend stock's return over time is the total return. Because I think a lot of dividend investors tend to get taken in by the dividend yield. And if it's high, they like to go for it. Uh, And then that's coupled with a falling share price. So that tends to be dangerous. So I think the best focus for dividend investors and actually all stock investors is to focus on the total return. Mm, So look at total return and that's your secret to prospering forever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And total return, I think over a a good time frame, so say three, five, 10 years, the longer the better, especially for dividend investors, you want the dividend to be rising uh, sustainably over you know, a period of five or 10 or even 20, 30 years, you've got some companies that pay dividends or rising dividends for over 50 or 60 years. So, you know, those are in the US known as dividend aristocrats. So those are the companies that you want to identify and you want to hold. And, you know, they tend to be really well run companies. They generate a lot of uh, free cash flow. They generate a lot of cash generally from operations and they tend to return that back to shareholders as well. Do they tend to be more value companies rather than growth companies? And of course, you can define value and growth in this case. Yeah. So I think they do tend to be more, you know, on a 
I guess a traditional metric of priced earnings, they tend to be cheaper than what you would consider as a growth company, like a tech company that reinvests all its uh, its cash flow and you know maybe its loss making. So they they actually turn profits. They obviously generate free cash flow, uh, and they tend to trade at a lower you know price price to earnings multiple than you would consider growth stocks. Um, but I wouldn't consider them exactly value because I think value is very subjective. It depends on you know the historical range in terms of the actual individual stock's valuation. How is it trading in, in relation to that historical multiple? Uh, but yeah, on, on the whole, I guess obviously they do trade cheaper than growth stocks. Okay, dividends is a very popular topic among listeners. Mm-hmm. And if you check out the Google search results, many people are really looking into dividend articles and dividend kind of content. Right. But many of us for myself especially, I'm more familiar with how dividend, how the dividend play is working out in Singapore. For example, REITs, you know, bank stocks. Yeah. Yeah, so that's more of what I understand. Yeah. But today we're going to take a global perspective. Right. So coming from a Singaporean point of view, this is what I understand about the local dividend play. Yeah. But when I venture out into US, Europe or other parts of Asia, what should I take note of? Okay, so I think First off, uh, let me just get a disclaimer in here that my compliance team will, uh, will want me to. Is you know the, everything I'm going to say is uh, not meant to be construed as personalized financial advice, and obviously do your own due diligence. And if you are seeking out advice on tax, go see a tax specialist for, for this kind of thing. But I think for retail investors, you can find a lot of information online, obviously by doing your own research um, and and obviously experiencing it by investing. But I think the main thing that holds back Singapore investors from going into the US and buying dividend stocks is obviously there's a 30% withholding tax in US uh, in US stock markets for dividends. So automatically you only get 70% of what you know is paid to you. So I think that is one key thing to note in uh, in the US at least. I think for other countries, if you know you you venture into the UK, um, there are there are lots of dividend plays in the UK as well. Um, it's Good to know what the tax structure is in the UK, as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know right now, there's actually no uh, dividend tax on foreigners um, in the UK. So you do receive it up to, I think, a certain cap. And then in other in other jurisdictions in Europe, there they should be what you would call a, a, a double taxation treaty. So there tends to be, you know, there'll be a... Uh, an agreement, say, between the Netherlands and Singapore, and you'll understand if it's a Netherlands-based company, how much does it pay out in, in dividends, and w- the dividend tax rate tends to be lower, right? So the U.S. tends to be among the highest for dividend taxes, uh, and the rest of the world, it does vary, so you have to do your own research. But obviously, the best and the biggest companies are found in the U.S., so it's key to go searching uh, for those kinds of companies there. Um, so I think what holds people back, as I said, is that tax, but if you think about the actual act of investing over five or 10 years, what you want to look at is the growth of that dividend rather than the yield of the dividend. So total returns come in as yeah. you're sharing just now. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and the growth of that dividend is really important because that obviously increases the yield over time, but it also in, in relation to the share price, you have to you have to compare it to the share price as well. And so figuring out the growth over long periods of time gives you, I think, a better idea of your your yield on cost. So this is a concept that is, say you invested in um, a Starbucks in 2008 and, you know, Starbucks is been a basically able to grow its dividend over the past decade uh, for you know at a, at a compound annual growth rate of about twenty five percent, say from two thousand ten to two thousand twenty. So say you bought shares in two thousand ten, and you would have bought it at a yield of I don't know probably like two or three percent. Um, but if you had just held those shares, you know what would the yield be now in two thousand twenty terms, uh, given the dividend? So growing that dividend at twenty five percent a year, you know the yield would have been I think around sixteen or seventeen percent, right? And then obviously you can take thirty percent off that, but your yield on cost is the yield, you know, at the time that you bought it, 
if you're thinking about today's money terms, it would be around sort of, um, you know, nine, 10%, which is still amazing, right? If you think about what, what price you bought the shares at and what dividend it's paying now since it's grown it at a compound annual growth rate of 25% for 10 years. Um, and if you compare that to some of the REITs in Singapore, I mean, there are some really great REITs here, but the kind of growth in the dividend annually that you see in REITs doesn't tend to be more than sort of four or 5%, you know, compounded over, over a long period of time. Um, so one of the examples I used was Capital Land Integrated Commercial Trust. And, you know, from 2009 to 2019, I actually took the period just before there was a, you know, a, crater, a cratering in their, in their dividend because of the pandemic. They were only grow, able to grow at about 3.1%. Um, so actually, the yield might be a, attractive, but actually the total return, and if you can then add that onto the total return, the, the actual growth of the dividend plus the appreciation of the share price is actually quite disappointing over that period of time. So I think it's more important to focus on the growth of the dividend and what is your yield on cost? What is it going to look like in five or 10 years, even, mm-hmm. even after tax in the US? Mm, so if you are building a dividend portfolio, it's worth venturing out if you yeah. consider total returns, yeah, right? because it, I, even after taxes. Exactly. I don't like to constrain or I don't think any of us should constrain ourselves to a geography just because of tax. Um, I think that's something that you have to admit or you just not admit, but you just have to accept as part of the market there. But that shouldn't be a reason to not hold really great companies or, you know, hold uh, really good structural stories over over sort of 5, 10, 15 years, because they can always surprise. And, you know, if they grow their dividend 30, 40% in one year, which is very common in the US with some of these companies that are, that are really generating strong free cash flow, that's that kind of growth in a dividend, you're, you're, rarely, you're rarely going to find that in Singapore. Okay, so how do you approach it? Do you go from a geographical point of view or by sectors, by industries? Um, I tend to look at the geographical point of view. Um, obviously, the U.S. Uh, is you know one of the top ones, and and the thing about the U.S. market is it also is a really global market. So you actually have a lot of uh, sort of ADRs, as you know. I mean, Chinese companies that are listed there, but also companies from uh, Taiwan or from uh, from Europe. And so, for example, that. Again, you, you'd have to understand where the domicile is for uh, for that company because they don't necessarily uh, withhold thirty percent. Because if they're domiciled in, you know, say Canada or the Netherlands or somewhere else in Europe, the the withholding rate might be fifteen percent because there's a double taxation treaty with Singapore, the Singapore's government. Um, so you have to really dig into that, figure it out, understand, uh, you know, what the actual taxation withhold withholding rate is to really sort of focus on on a lower. I guess if you if you're thinking about you know lower withholding rates, if that's your thing, Thing. In terms of the sectors, um, a lot of it you'd find obviously utilities and power providers and a lot of consumer discretionary names that have just continued to pay rising dividends for, for years and years just because the US economy is such a strong consumer economy. Uh, that tends to be where you would where you'd find the usual dividends. But I think just basically in any companies that generate a lot of free cash flow, uh, which is effectively, you know, operating income after taxes minus uh, capex, right, minus investment. And so that's the cash you have left over after all the investment and operating expenses. So that is basically cash that you, you know, it's very hard, I guess, to deceive shareholders about that cash that you generate on the free cash flow basis. And if they're generating really strong free cash flow, then companies will be able to pay out dividends and will be able to continue to, to hike that dividend over time. Well, I mean, 30% withholding taxes still feels very painful. Yes. Although it depends oh, on the time frame they're looking at. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so should I be investing in for the long term? And how yeah. do you define a long term in this case? Yeah, so I think you should invest for the long term. I mean, I'm a really strong believer in long term mm. investing anyway. So if you are investing um, based on 
um, you know, I, I think it, I guess it also depends on your time horizon, right? I mean, if you're approaching retirement, if you're, you know, two, three years away from retirement and you just want a safe REIT or a bank that yields, you know, four or 5%, that's totally fine. And that's tax free. But if you're younger, I think there is definitely more scope for you to to venture outside the traditional sectors you'd find here and and try and invest for 10, 15 years and compound those. And if you can reinvest those dividends back in into the stock, right? Because even though you're going to get a 30% haircut on the, the tax, mm. on, from the tax perspective, at least that amount, that 70%, you know, hopefully will continue to grow quite a lot over the next five or 10 years if that compounds, if that dividend continues to compound. So I think it's something, again, that you, you know, just like volatility in the, in the market, you just have to accept that's part of the market in the US, but don't make that a reason not to invest in dividends, I think. Okay. So how, how should I screen for good dividend stocks globally? Globally. Um, I think, I, think, I guess the screen is, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that cuts it down or simplifies it a bit too much. I mean, I tend, you know, you tend to look at a yield, you tend to look at, I guess, the dividend per share and you, you want to understand uh, how fast it's growing. I mean, I think the one of the best ways to, to understand is the free cash flow yield, if that's, you know, really high, if that's rising. Again, the payout ratio is, are they able to cover their dividends? Is it a, a reasonable payout ratio? You don't want a company that's paying out sort of 80, 90% of its earnings in dividends, just because I think that's a little bit um, that's a bit iffy if that's going to continue or something happens, maybe they have to cut their dividend. So what you want is you want a company that is really easily able to cover its dividend, is able to pay that out and able to hike that over time. Uh, and obviously it's growing earnings, right? So I mean, without earnings continuing to expand over time, that's that dividend's not going to be able to grow. Um, but I think looking at a payout ratio of sort of like 40 to 60% is pretty comfortable for even a yield name. And actually, if you're talking about a dividend growth name, which is maybe what I consider dividend growth is something that's probably yielding under 2%, but is growing a dividend, its dividend at maybe sort of 10, 15, 20% a year, right? And there you're looking at companies paying out maybe 25% or 20% of their earnings in dividends, um, which gives them plenty of headroom to grow, right? which is what you want. I think over time, and you find that a lot in in technology stocks like Apple and Microsoft. I mean, they they actually pay a dividend. Not many people maybe are focused on that too much because they're so huge. But they actually are the only two out of the big tech names that pay a dividend. So I think the amount, as you know, of the free cash flow that they generate is huge, right? And so they've gone the route of paying some in dividends and obviously buying back a lot of stock as well. Mm. How are you personally building your dividend portfolio? Any any lessons? Any mistakes that you made? Yeah, I think. Again, I think earlier when I was younger, maybe I focused a bit too much on yield and I didn't focus more on the growth. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the mistake that I made. So there are some really great companies that yield four, five, six percent, but anything that's starting to yield seven, eight, nine percent, you, I for me have, you know, alarm bells ringing. Is there something up with that? Because in a world where, I mean, obviously now interest rates are rising, but previously when interest rates were so low, anything yielding that much was just, it was just maybe a warning sign or a red flag. So I think for me, how I'm building it now is focusing on not the yield, but more the, how is that absolute DPS or dividend per share growing on a three-year, five-year, 10-year horizon? And how is the business performing? How is the free cash flow growth uh, coming along? And can they continue to, you know, to to deliver on that on, on all those fronts. Okay, so was there uh, something recent that you did? Because um, well, <laughs> yeah. interest rates environment right. is very different, right? And 
it's 2022 a year right. yeah, yeah, for yeah. a dividend play. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a good reminder for everyone um, that you you know you can't just have you know Shopify and C and Twilio in your in your you know your account. All these super super growth turbocharged growth stocks, growth yeah. stocks right? Because right? right. they're gonna get haircuts of maybe you're seeing some of them as up to 70, 80 percent. So I think everyone, no matter what your risk profile, I think you need to have some of those dividend stocks in your portfolio and just anchors just because from a total return perspective, I mean, there was the decade actually in the US, which is a good example from 2000 to 2009, where the S&P on a price basis was essentially flat or slightly negative, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take in total re- total returns, um, it was positive. So I think holding dividend stocks in that period of time, that decade would have uh, would have allowed you, you know, a bit of a buffer in your portfolio and given you some income as well. So I think it's a good reminder with rising inflation and interest rates going up that now everyone's focusing on cash, right? Everyone's focusing on fundamentals. Whereas I think in the the sort of last couple of years, everyone's been a bit caught up in the in the uh, euphoria of the markets and all these growth stocks and this mass these massive TAMs, like total adjustable markets that people talk about, which still holds true. There are there are, you know, these are great companies that are still got massive growth runways, but in terms of the price action, it's not as, you know, people obviously not as excited, right? You see a lot of people on Twitter just saying everything's going to zero. So I think there's the height of euphoria with growth and then now everyone's super bearish, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't stick to your investment plan. But I think that investment plan, no matter your age or your, as again, your risk profile, I think it should include some, what you consider sort of boring dividend stocks, but I don't consider them that boring because I think unless you're buying something that yields, you know, a REIT that maybe yields five, 6%, that's just, that's pretty standard. That's maybe more of like a proxy for a bond, you you would think. Um, but some of these other businesses in consumer discretionary, you know, that are global, that are growing dividends, um, they're generating real cash, right? And real cash flows. So I think that's important to, to have, especially in a, in a time of uncertainty. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, I mentioned geographical, look at the US, take note of the taxes. And it really depends on whether you're approaching it from an individual stock picking point of view yeah, or yeah. investing in, in funds or ETFs yeah. for a dividend play, right? right. You mentioned sectors. Yeah. I want to go into you know, the characteristics of each sector as yeah. well. Yeah. And you know, sh- should I be picking stocks? Or just, yeah. you know, investing in just one fund, that's my dividend play, I'm going to get my dividends from that, yeah. and that's it for me. Well, ETFs, you know, are a great vehicle. I'm sure a lot of, like, you know, your listeners know that there are Irish domiciled ETFs. I mean, that's like a really common one where yeah. it's listed in London, but the, the withholding tax is 15%. 15% yeah. So you can buy that in London, and that's, you know, either on an accumulation basis, which means... They, uh, they reinvest your dividends for you or a distribution basis, which means the ETF distributes the, the dividends to you on a quarterly basis. So you can pick either kind of uh, share class. Um, so I think from an ETF perspective, that's a good option if you really hate that 30% tax. Um, the only downside to that is that 
it seems to me that it's pretty vanilla ETFs that are listed there. And obviously in the US, you have a lot more opportunity to, to you know, have a, a bigger range, right, mm. of choice. So you I mentioned think, boring, so that'll be yeah, more boring. That's the more yeah. like, that's the more basic, you know, your, your market tracking and obviously the yield on the S&P right now is not that exciting. I mean, it must be maybe 2% or a bit, a bit more than that. Um, but I think if you're looking at ETF and you want a dividend ETF or you want uh, one that isn't sort of um, hostage to that tax, then mm. I think the, the Irish domicile choices are pretty good. Um, if you're looking from a stock picking perspective, I think that is, you know, I think that's a lot maybe less emotionally torturing to pick than growth stocks, right? Because growth stocks can go up and down sort of 60, 70% um, in very fast periods of time. So if you're buying, I don't know, sort of, you know, like a Walmart or a Home Depot or something like that, that that really isn't gonna, um, the volatility in that those types of stocks, they tend to be a lot lower than what you would find in, you know, I guess a Peloton or <laughs> like a Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. So those types of stocks go up and down very, very quickly. Um, and you can have drawdowns, which is, uh, you know, sell-offs that can range from, you know, 60, 70%. Whereas in the big, Retailers, the guys who pay dividends, um, you know, they're not they're not going to deviate too much from what the market's fallen from. So I think the S and P's down what over ten percent, and something like a Walmart's probably about 15 percent off its high. So it's similar as well, right? So it's not going to be something that is going to make you lose sleep at night. I'd say, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you go into individual stock picking, mm-hmm. let's take a look at the sectors, right? For example, consumer discretionary, yep. uh, tech. Yeah. What are some names that we should know about for okay. dividend play? Well, yeah. I mean, as I said, with tech, right? You yeah, have yeah. Microsoft. You have you have you have Apple. I mean, just because they're such massive cash flow generators, mm. you know, that they're free cash flow and they're so dominant in their sectors. And again, they they're the only ones who pay a dividend um, from the tech giants at the moment. I, although you know, there's a lot of talk about. Alphabet, Google being able to, but not deciding not to. So I think that's you know up to investors to to figure out where they want to be. But in tech, it's those guys are the the big ones, right? And they pay out in total dollar terms. I think among the top ten in the world. I mean, if you're thinking about others, I mean TSMC is a good example of something that also they you know they yield a pretty decent amount. They pay out a pretty good dividend. There's a lot of capex involved in chip making, so that's something to, you should be aware of. Um, but because they're domiciled in Taiwan, they have a lower rate mm. again. So they have an ADR in the US, but in terms of the tax, uh, from my understanding, I think it's 20% of Taiwan and Singapore. So it's a it's still a tax, but it's less than the 30%, which is which is good. Um, if you're talking about just consumer discretionary, you know, some of those names I just mentioned, the Walmarts, mm. like the Walmarts, the Home Depots, uh, the Lowe's, the Targets, you know, um, Lowe's and Target are they're both dividend aristocrats, so they've been paying dividends for you know over 25, 30 years uh, since since mm. they, you know going back to the 60s, 50s, and 60s. Explain the dividend aristocrats for me. Yeah, so dividend aristocrats is basically a group of dividend stocks in the U.S. that have been paying uh, either flat or rising dividends over, I think, the past 25 or 30 years. But some of these go back way, way longer than that. Yeah. So I think there's a threshold of 25 years um, to be classified as a dividend aristocrat, um, and a lot of these companies. You know, they're 40, 50 years that have been paying either, you know, the same dividend or rising dividends. Um, and so I think Walmart, I think Walmart also falls into that category. So a lot of the consumer discretionary giants that have scale, um, what you would assume would have pricing power now that we're going into an inflationary environment, um, mm. they also pay, you know, very solid dividends and their payout ratios are very reasonable. Um, but 
they don't yield a lot, right? So that's something you have to accept. But a lot of them are growing their dividend as well mm-hmm. at, at pretty reasonable clips. So it's more about identifying what business you want to be in, you know, well, what sector you want to be in. Does that stock fit your risk profile? Uh, is it growing at the rate you want that dividend to grow? Um, and importantly, obviously, is that backed up by the fundamentals? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's key when you're picking stocks anyway to understand the fundamentals of the business and make sure the dividend is well, uh, well-funded. Could you explain their pricing power in an inflationary environment? Yeah, right. So I think with inflation, you know, prices, obviously they will go up for a basket of goods. And so pricing power is effectively a business's ability to raise the price of its good or the pricing of its goods without losing market share, right? So I think it's something that is sort of the the holy grail of businesses in inflationary environments, right? They want to be able to raise prices without affecting their market share and affecting the, their revenue growth. And so I think you've just seen Netflix raise the price of their subscription. So I think you'll kind of, you'll, we'll figure this out over the next few months if these kinds of price hikes, you know, whether it's affected the business much. And my inclination um, is with Netflix, it probably hasn't. And then also with Amazon Prime, they just raised their Amazon Prime subscription in the US pricing wise on an annual basis. I don't think that's going to impact them just because Amazon's so embedded in everybody's lives. So I think it's a good it's a good barometer of how important these services are or these goods are to people in their lives. And if they can retain that pricing power and they can continue to grow despite inflation rising, uh, you know, climbing, then it's a good it's a good sign for the business. Okay. So what are some interesting sectors to look at for dividend companies? Um, well, yeah, as I said, tech, consumer discretionary. Mm. There's also, uh, you know, there are REITs. There's a REIT sector in the US, which obviously people are obviously less attracted to just because you have Singapore REITs here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's utilities. So there's a lot of utility companies in the US. You have a lot of big clean energy companies like Nextier Energy. Um, you have a lot of providers of power and uh, other utilities such as uh, sort of Brookfield Infrastructure, Brookfield Renewable. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of other, um, you know, telco, telcos as well. But again, with some of the telcos, I would warn on the yield basis, they're yielding quite quite a lot, but then something like an AT&T, you know, has really suffered, its business has really suffered over the past sort of five, 10 years. It's made some really bad acquisitions, but it's yielding six or 7%. Um, but then obviously last year, they, I think they spun off their media division, they're planning to spin off their media division and they cut their dividend. So again, that's another sign for investors to really understand what they're buying into or just be really clear where the business is headed, is management really focused on the shareholder and the shareholders returns and and you know obviously serving shareholders or are they looking to just make a you know make a massive purchase big deal and and uh, and then leave with a golden parachute so i think it's dependent on understanding the business the leadership the fundamentals and and how that comes together to provide dividend growth what sectors are you looking at or what's attractive to you right now what's attractive to me right For now this year this year I don't know. I think this year from a from a dividend perspective, mm-hmm. I think from a dividend perspective, you know, the, as I said, the consumer discretionary names, the, the big tech guys who have done really well. I think healthcare is one of those that is always going to going to be important. There are mm-hmm. some healthcare companies in the US that, you know, pay pay pretty good dividends. And it's one of those sectors that tends to be pretty defensive because everybody, you know, in terms of medical devices, medical services, there's always a need and demand for that, right? No matter what happens. And then if you're looking at clean energy, renewable energy, there's there's definitely opportunities in, in those sectors. I think it had a really good 2020, didn't have a very good 2021 renewable energy. Um, but I think it's one of those themes over the next 
10, 15 years because of that massive drive to decarbonize. Uh, that's something that it will play out over over a longer period of time. So I think just, I would suggest not to be so downbeat just based on last year's price action, just think longer term uh, and see what kind of projects a lot of these power providers are, are generating and you know and some of them do pay pretty decent dividend yields of over three percent so i would uh keep an eye out for those because mm, traditionally companies. for a dividend play i might be looking at banks yeah I yeah, might yeah be banks looking at as consumer well. discretionary yeah. but you're talking about you know something to look at in the future yeah you know in terms of the technology mm. healthcare healthcare clean yeah. energy clean energy yeah hot I think, keyword yes i think banks are in the u.s at least from my perspective they've always been more attractive than europe just because Europe has always had major, mm-hmm. major issues since the global financial crisis with getting debt off their balance sheets, um, you know, the stress testing, all that kind of stuff that the Federal Reserve did post 2008, I think really helped the banking sector in the US. So the banks are doing quite well, obviously, you know, the big, the big ones like JP Morgan, Bank of America, even Wells Fargo's, you know, after that nightmare that it had a few years ago, is starting to recover. Um, but European banks, they are still, I think, weighed down by just the slow growth in Europe. Obviously, there's a lot of opinion for Europe to pick back up and, and the growth to really, really uh, sort of come to the fore there. And everyone's talking about the rotation into Europe. But I think European banks, or this is, I think this is maybe a differentiation between Europe and the US, at least in terms of dividends. In the UK, for example, just before the pandemic, there were lots of companies that were yielding, you know, five, six percent, paying out loads of dividends, which is great. Um, and UK investors tend to really like dividends. Uh, it's a bit similar to Singapore in that sense, but they weren't very well covered, um, the dividends in the UK. So you saw a lot of energy companies, uh, banks, as soon as the pandemic hit, they just had to cut their dividends straight away. Uh, that didn't really happen in the US because in the US, a lot of companies return money to shareholders via share buybacks, right? So share buybacks are just a tax-efficient way of returning money to um, to shareholders. So they buy back open uh, shares on the market, and then they obviously cancel those shares. And so sometimes it can have maybe unintended con- consequences where EPS or earnings per share rises, but maybe that's a result of the cancellation of shares. Um, but the great thing about share buybacks, at least, is that you you can cut those, right? Whereas dividends are much more heavily uh, defended by management teams. Um, so you saw massive pullbacks, obviously, in share buyback programs after the pandemic in the US, but most dividends uh, held up pretty well. So I think that's something as well to consider, at least from my perspective, when I think about Europe versus the US for dividends is a lot of European companies, or at least in the UK, maybe there was a lot of hype around dividends, but it wasn't sustainable hype. Whereas in the US, it tends to be quite sustainable. It tends to be pretty stable, even though your yield is not going to be you know, what you would find elsewhere. But for me as a long-term investor, I'm much more focused, again, on the growth and less on the yield. So it's mm. more on the growth of the dividend and the sustainability. That's key. And based on that, because uh, I'm getting the sense that although our theme for today is a global dividend hunt, we're still yeah. very much focused on the US. Yeah. And that's because of the regulatory right. environment. It's, it's yeah. more stable. It's more stable. I mean, and you're comparing yeah. with Europe. And yeah. Yeah. We haven't even talked about emerging markets. Emerging is markets. it more risky? Yeah. Well, I think Hong Kong is one that, you know, we had talked mm. about earlier about bringing up on this episode. And so Hong Kong is something that maybe Singapore investors aren't aware there's there's zero dividend tax there, right? So if you buy Hong Kong stocks, then you actually don't have to pay a dividend. Mm. But if there's uh, an eight share 
listing of a Chinese stock, then you have to pay a 10% withholding tax on that because that's a mainland listed company or is a mainland domicile company and mm. that, that withholding tax is 10%. But it's still better than 30%, yeah, right? And that's one of the characteristics. That's one of, of the characteristics yeah, of the, the Hong Kong market. The hate shares, about, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so in um, in Hong Kong, but there are plenty of, you know, the plenty of local stocks that are domiciled in um, in Hong Kong that mm. obviously have zero tax. So, you know, there, there are plenty of companies, I think there are some banks there. If you like banks, that's back in favor. I'm not a huge fan of banks in Hong Kong just because I think they are probably being disrupted a bit more than maybe the American equivalents. Um, but there's, you know, there are definitely opportunities, I think, in the China space, in financials, either in insurance companies as well. Um, you have some of the, the solid local power companies in Hong Kong, like CLP, China Line Power, um, which pays out a pretty solid dividend. It's not going to light the wall on fire. It's a utility, so it yields maybe 4 or 5%, um, but it's really stable. Um, so those kinds of companies, they obviously don't, you don't have to pay any tax on that. So that's great from a Singapore perspective, I think. Yeah, I think emerging markets generally, it tends to be a bit more of, I guess, an accessibility issue. Can you buy really good shares and have you got the resources to dive into the companies? And I think that's one of the shortcomings for a lot of EM market, you know, for EMs is that there's not enough. Emerging markets. Yeah, yeah. there's the yeah, emerging markets. There's not enough, I guess, content or resources or research out there for you to back it up and be confident putting in, you know, your hard-earned money into a stock there. And in terms of the ETFs, it's less, again, less accessible and less um, less li- li- liquid if you're going into a local stock market. Whereas Hong Kong is a very liquid stock market, right? So you can definitely easily buy, um, buy, the, uh, buy the shares that you want to there. We have another episode with Tim yeah. on the Hong Kong market being the gateway to China. Yeah. So more details over there. Yeah. But today we'll you know focus on the on dividend, the dividend play and we we'll talk about the yeah, some, yeah, yeah. some of these Chinese companies, right, right, uh, right, right. Companies is the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yeah. 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 And you shared a bit about you know in terms of dividends, right. what we should be looking out for. Right. Right. Let's talk a bit about the risks. Right. And one of, of them would be forex risks. Right. Gone all over the world, US, Europe, you know, Hong Kong, yeah, China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Forex. Yeah. Foreign exchange. Right. Mm. Okay, so forex risk is just against that's exactly the same risk you're taking when you buy U.S. stocks or you buy Hong Kong stocks. Um, so in the dividend sense, it it doesn't really make um, much of a difference, I guess you could say. Um, obviously, you are getting a return in the form of a dividend payout in that local currency, whether it be U.S. dollars or if you're you know Great British pounds or Hong Kong dollars or euros. Um, so I think that's that's just part of part and parcel of investing internationally. I've always never really being too concerned about FX volatility because over time it just evens itself out. I mean, you know, you had a period where the US dollar was was falling against the Singapore dollar and now you've got a period where it's strengthening because interest rates are going up. So it all, it all sort of evens itself out. And, and if you're talking about foreign exchange, unless you're talking about the kinds of movements that you're seeing in crypto markets where there's up 20 30, 40%, down 40, you know, FX markets. That's an understatement, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not crypto, 80, 90%. Yeah. 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 So yeah. <laughs> I think with FX... No, well, some, some, some tech stocks are going stocks are, at a level yeah, recently. Yeah, tech so. stocks are. But I think from a foreign exchange <laughs> volatility perspective, that's, you know, I think the FX is probably the least of your worries if you're holding a lot of these growth stocks, right? Mm. So, I mean, the US dollar this year has has strengthened has strengthened a decent amount. But then, you know, that could all change dependent on, on the interest rate outlook from the Fed, if there's, you know, if there's a pullback in expectation. So right now, what they're pricing in is four or five hikes this year, right, for interest rates, I mean, for for the Fed funds rate. And if that doesn't materialize, then you could see the dollar, you know, um, weaken 
Um, mm. But if it's faster than that, then the dollar could strengthen. So it's stuff that's completely out of our control. So I really don't tend to get too, I try to encourage people not to get too caught up in that because it's nothing you can really do. Um, and it doesn't affect anything to do with the companies, um, you know, the, their fundamentals or how good, how good their business is. It might impact some short-term earnings because, you know, if you're a U.S. company that I guess derives a lot of your revenue overseas, and you've got a stronger dollar patriated. Then maybe some of those earnings, uh, you know, might might be might be cut, but it might be cut like one or two percent, or like mm. you know, zero point five percent. So it's nothing uh, material. I think is my point. Um, so I think if you're thinking about U.S. dollars, if you're thinking about the the British pound, or if you're thinking about euros or Hong Kong dollars, it's all uh, quite similar, one and the same, I'd say. I mean, Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar. Again, that's another little nugget. I'm not, you know, I'm sure everyone's aware of that, but in case you aren't, like, you know, Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar. So that's, I guess, taking out a bit of currency taking risk out for a yourself. Bit of the risk, the risk yeah. for yourself, at least in Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, because coming from a Singaporean retail investor's perspective, yeah. I mean, I invest in Singapore, you know, dividend stocks. Dividend stocks, it, right. It, yeah, it, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. You know, when you venture out, you have to factor in taxes, you have to factor in the forex, yeah. and you have to understand each sector as well. Mm. And well, if you're doing stock picking, you have to understand the companies exactly. they're picking. Yeah. And well, I can understand some people just, you know, put it into an ETF, ETF or fund. Yeah. That makes it easier for a dividend yeah. play in a sense. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. advice, you know, on what they should do if they're trying to, starting to venture out? Start to venture Singapore? out? Yeah. Um, I think if you're thinking about an ETF, I mean, there are lots of thematic ETFs, either, you know, there are, there are sector ETFs. So if you like REITs in the US, then you can go for that. But then again, you know, from a, from a, tax perspective, that to me or to anyone maybe wouldn't be so, um, that wouldn't be so attractive, maybe because you're focusing on the the top level. And so maybe the growth of the dividend is probably going to be pretty, pretty vanilla. Um, but if you're looking at venturing out and buying individual stocks, I think starting out with the big, really well-known companies that are just really strong, I think is, is probably the easiest thing to do before mm-hmm. you start diving into it. I mean, in Singapore itself, there are re-ETFs as well, right? So you could always just go into a re-ETF in Singapore. Um, that's tax-free. I think ETFs are a great instrument if you want to invest into um, into dividends. And, you know, obviously there are also mutual funds available, um, but you have to watch for the expense ratios and all that kind of thing and the track record. So I tend to be someone who likes to pick the best dividend plays, I guess, or the best long-term dividend payers. So that's something that I like to focus on. So dividends, I mean, from my own personal thinking is that there's a dividend stock, which is pure yield, right? So something you consider a REIT, which yields five or 6%, and it's maybe growing its dividend um, a little bit, but it's not really got that much growth in there. And maybe you're owning a different asset with REITs, you're owning property. So it's actually not exactly the same asset class as what you would consider a stock. Whereas maybe um, sort of a Home Depot, which has maybe grown its dividend 20, 25% over the past decade, that's a dividend growth stock. So it yields less, as I said, 2%, 2% maybe less, but it's growing its dividend really, really fast. Um, so I think it's just adjusting your your risk profile. If you want more yield, if that's what you are comfortable with, that's fine. If you want more dividend growth, where you can see that dividend growing quickly over time, then you should have some of that. But I think you should definitely have both of those types of stocks in your portfolio, along with you know whatever you, your growth names are. That you, yeah, because you as we're building have. our dividend portfolio, yeah. well, you want some stability. You want some stability. You want some st- stable source of income. Exactly. That's from the dividends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, you don't want the like, excitement, excitement of the growth stocks, right? Yeah, exactly. I think, well, I mean, you know, when you're younger, you tend to want to own more growth stocks just because you are able to take more risk. Yeah. But again, risk is 
something that's totally personal. So mm-hmm. everyone's portfolio will look different based on their own risk profile and what they're comfortable with, uh, you know, holding. Some people are very comfortable with their portfolio going down by 60, 70%, and others freak out maybe when it's going down by 20%. So I think it's really dependent on what you're comfortable with, what your, what your you know, risk tolerance is for these types of names. But I think with dividend stocks, as, as I said, you're not, if a company's already paying a dividend, that means it's profitable, tends to be profitable, tends to be generating free cash flow, tends to not be in hyper growth phase, hyper growth mode. Um, so it's returning cash to shareholders. So you wouldn't see those types of stocks in, you know, in the SaaS, exactly, arena, you know, SaaS type arena, except, you know, uh, maybe a uh, Microsoft just because it's such a giant and it's worth over $2 trillion and it generates however many billion in free cash flow. So those types of stocks, as I said, won't be losing 20%, 30% of their, of their value overnight. So it's mm-hmm. something that, again, provides a bit of an anchor for your portfolio and safety. But it's also a good base to grow out your portfolio for dividends because I think dividends in Singapore, it's something that you definitely want to take advantage of. And because... You're always thinking about dividends providing a stream of income when you retire, or at least right. if you're younger, you want to retire earlier. You won't, my thinking is you won't retire based on investing into DBS, UOB, OCBC, Singtel, all the big REITs here on 5% yields, because you'd have to amass, I don't know, whatever, million, yeah. two million or Your whatever. Capital needs to be large capital enough. needs to be large enough to yeah. basically provide that income, right? Whereas if you are starting out with little capital, and you're hoping to get to a certain amount of passive income over time, then again, that pays, I think, to think in terms of the growth of that dividend, because even with the 30% tax or whatever, as long as that dividend is growing, compounding strongly over time, that's exciting because then that initial capital that you put, the return from that is starting to, is starting to generate uh, compounded returns over time from the dividend. So that to me is maybe more exciting for a younger person who doesn't have as much capital is that dividends growing really strongly. Um, and then you have, again, you have other areas where it's more yield focused, but mm-hmm. I think it's more about having a mixture of those types of stocks and not just focused on one area. So when you say dividends growing strongly, I know that's one of the screening factors you look at. Yeah. Um, but I've, that's looking at historical data, right? Yeah. And of course, you have to understand where the company is at, course, what its competi- yeah, competitors yeah, yeah, yeah. are doing, you yeah. know, but how, how do you, you know forecast yeah. for a dividend play? I think, again, free cash flow. I think okay. I would really emphasize free cash flow mm. because free cash flow is what determines a company's ability to pay. So I've, I think net income and your earnings per share, that can always be fiddled with uh, from an accounting perspective. But free cash flow tends to be, it tends to tell the truth in terms of the business and how it's performing and actually the cash it's generating, right? After every all the expenses and everything. And so if a company is got rising free cash flow is generating really strong free cash flow on year after year and continues to grow that, that's a good sign that the company will continue to pay a a dividend or a rising dividend. And so for me, that's one of the, I'd say that's the key for an ability for for the dividend. Besides, you know, there are lots of other factors that you should obviously consider. um, But for me, that's the, the key one. Okay. All right then. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been a good, been a good chat. Thank you for listening all the way here. Stay after this outro because usually we have some bonus content right at the end. It's like the end credit scene of a movie. But before that, I hope you've learned something useful today. If you like more of this content, join our Telegram group, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. For all this and more, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. My name is Andrew. Stay tuned for the next episode of Chill with the Financial Coconut. And now time for the three questions. Let's, let's go. What's your biggest failure? 
And what did you learn from it? Need not be financial. Okay, I'll probably take financial just because it's probably the easiest that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I you know I have a story of, of a company I invested in probably in about 2015 or two, no, probably 2012 to 2014. Um, so it was a little company. It was not a little anymore. It's, it's still pretty big called Lenovo, uh, which just got actually just got added to the Hang Seng Index or got re-added to the Hang Seng Index after it got, it dropped out. So back in 2011, 12 period, you know, I think it was doing, doing really well in terms of smartphones. Um, it was doing really well with the PC market share that it had. It obviously performed very strongly in terms of, uh, in terms of the share price as well. And so that was something that I was really interested in, I guess, from a, from a Hong Kong investor perspective, because I was living in Hong Kong, working in Hong Kong. I followed Asian equities in my previous role. So that's something I've always been focused on. And so Lenovo was a company that I started to invest in on a monthly basis um, from a DCA perspective. I was really quite keen on it. Yeah, dollar, um, cost and, you know, dollar, dollar, yeah. dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging. And so... You know, I think it performed pretty well for about six months a year, um, but then it obviously started to peak around maybe 2013 or end of 2013. Um, and I think one of the mistakes from my end is that yeah, I just didn't really do enough due diligence on the business and the competitive landscape. Um, and so if you think about it in hindsight, you always think, oh, I should have known that. Um, but maybe knowing what I know now or reading up and just being a bit more maybe informed about everything, I think I should have known better about the competitive landscape to to the business in Lenovo's business. Uh, the hardware business, so to speak, is just, it's so competitive in the electronic space. And so they did really, really great with their handsets for maybe a year or two years in China. And then they started to fall out because, as you know, you had Huawei and Oppo and uh, Xiaomi come to the fore and then Samsung. And so it kind of became a second tier company in that respect. Uh, and they were at that time entering into data centers and you know enterprise uh, enterprise data centers, and that wasn't really taking off strongly. Um, and it taught me just it was a good lesson, I think, for investors because everyone makes mistakes and everyone should learn from them. Just for me, maybe it taught me that I didn't really want to be involved too much in electronics hardware. And since then, I've not really been that keen on on that space unless they're a market leader. I mean, you see in, in Samsung and Apple, they're just so big and so huge that they have that uh, influence over the market and the pricing power. And Apple, for one reason, one reason I don't hold Apple as is because of because of the physical production of phones. And there are so many risks with supply chains and all that. So I think for me, that was one reason I've never been a huge fan of it. Um, but obviously, you know, the share price returns uh, tell a different story and they've been amazing. But I think for me, Lenovo was a lesson just to think about due diligence, thinking about the competitive landscape, understanding what types of companies you want to be invested in. Uh, because some people really like to invest in electronics companies, electronics hardware companies. But even today, the types of companies that you see like Xiaomi and, and even Lenovo now, they still really don't appeal to me and I've got no interest. And I think that was probably something I learned from that from that whole ordeal. And I, I cut cut the uh, cut the investment a loss, but you know, that's you have to deal with that. I think it was like 40, 30, 40 percent loss. Mm-hmm. But you know, a good lesson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not too expensive, thankfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest challenge in your life right now? And how are you tackling it? Okay, biggest challenge for me is trying to find enough time to do exercise. Because I think this is something I had mentioned before that I <laughs> trying to exercise more. And I think it's something that has been I've neglected for the past couple of years with young kids. 
Um, and it's something that I want to focus more time on. I used to play a lot of football. I used to do yoga. I've had a bit of a wrist injury recently um, from, from doing yoga, actually, ironically. But I think I pushed myself. So I think it's trying to find the time to, to really focus on your well-being, which I think has been neglected with no... But now football's back. It's thank, Thankfully, with social distancing measures being eased, I can hopefully maybe get a game of five-a-side in at some point. Uh, and with a, you know, with a, as a father of two, it's important to be active and just, uh, yeah, take care of yourself, eat well, but also exercise, which is something I'm finding very difficult to do right now. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? I think just providing advice or good lessons for investors. I just want to try and help investors invest more intelligently and try and think about long-term investing as a, as a great way to generate long-term wealth and to be patient. So I think for me, it's more about reaching out to people and hopefully they remember what I've written or what I've appeared on and what I've said about specific topics because I always find the world of investing really interesting, really ever-changing, right? There's always something going on, a different dynamic. Like now you have the, you know, the Ukraine-Russia tensions and that's it, freaking everyone out. But mm. that will probably pass and then, and then the market will, you know, will figure out a way to hopefully over time go up. So I think it's more about wanting to reach a bigger audience and hopefully educate them on the benefits of long-term investing and staying patient and and thinking beyond just the next three or six months or 12 months. Right. I mean, this is our second conversation. You yeah. talk about patience a lot, long-term mm, investing, right. and don't find certain you know, type of, types of investing style boring. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. like that's really important for you. Right. Like, where did yeah. that come from? I think it was, I, I think a lot of it was shaped by, obviously my time at, uh, I worked at Schroeder's, which is a big fund manager. They're really focused on long-term investing in the Asian equities team. And then I worked at The Motley Fool, which is a massive proponent of that long-term mindset. And that's where I really, really, I think, took a lot of things to heart, understood a lot of the dynamic dynamics rather of the market, the market psychology, understanding that you can't freak out every time the market falls, you know, one, 2% or even five, 10%. And eventually... If you look at market history, if you look at market data, it will always recover. It's just more about being patient and keeping your emotions in check, which I think is really difficult for everybody because there are those base emotions. Everyone feels it. I feel it. You feel it. Everyone does. It's more about just trying to take a deep breath, uh, focus on the long term, focus on where your portfolio or how it might look you know, in five years, 10 years, and, and measure yourself on those timeframes rather than over six months, 12 months, because in that time frame, it's not enough to tell whether a company is doing well or whether the market's going to make you money over, over, um, over a long term as well. Yeah. All right. Thank All right. you. Cool. Thanks. Yes, Thanks, bye. Andrew. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a word from our sponsor. 
This podcast does not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security or instruments, or an invitation or recommendation to enter into any transaction. All capital market products contain risks and may not be suitable for everyone. Please refer to the risk disclosure statement in the general terms and conditions of CGS CIMB Securities Singapore Private Limited. Company registered number 19870162 d